everyone, and thanks for listening. This is episode 11 of The Minimal Pair. I am Jean Dempsey, and this is Stephanie Axe. Hello, everybody. Hi, Stephanie. So, as promised in our last episode, um, we will be discussing classroom management in this episode's Topics in Language Learning. That's absolutely right. And the conversation today was inspired by um, a blog that I read called Tips on Classroom Management for Adult ELL Classes, and it's from the English Skills Learning Center blog. Um, and I thought that it was it was a good source because it targeted adult ELL learners or uh, classes. And as we both know, teaching adults is very different from teaching children, and therefore the, the managing the classroom is very different. Absolutely. Um, and I think that maybe people don't give thought to classroom management because it, we do teach adults. But right. Like, they're adults. They don't need to be kept in line. <laughs> exactly. But you still have the students who are overeager and the students who um, maybe talk with each other in class more than they should. And so I think it's definitely a topic worth discussion. Yeah, I think definitely um, one one th- that I hadn't thought of was the over-eager over students. Um, I have students who... You know, I would call on someone to give the answer, and while that person took a moment to think about it, someone else would call out the answer, and that was always so frustrating. Um, and then students who talk to each other or who would call out stuff to me and try to make jokes or whatever, and it's funny one time, but happens again, and it's sort of disruptive. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit of the what and the why of classroom management. So um, I think... You know, what classroom management is, is basically targeting the problems that we just mentioned. So, you know, in order for class to run smoothly and to have an optimal learning environment, um, the teacher has to maintain a certain amount of control of the classroom. Um, And so that's what it is and why it's important. Um, Well, so that people can concentrate, so that the teacher can concentrate. I know that if I get distracted during a lesson or... Um, you know, get flustered or something, then that's going to affect my teaching. Right. And you never know when different issues or um, conflicts will come up. You know, when we're teaching so many different age groups and cultural backgrounds, um, you know, it may require a little bit of um, interference from the students or from the teacher to run between the students or to help keep people on task. Um, and also, I know that Jean and I, we've talked about how I've had a classroom where uh, part of it was American students and the other part, uh, they were ESL students. And so that was a challenge sometimes to manage because you had students who were obviously at different levels, had different level of vocabulary, um, different understanding of what it means to be a student in the U.S. And so... Um, you know, managing that classroom while still maintaining a fair level of grading and treatment, that became a challenge at times. It can also be challenging depending on where you're teaching. We've both taught in different settings. We've both taught at the community college as well as four-year colleges. Um, The four-year college where I teach, I sometimes have undergraduate students and sometimes I have grad students. So all of these things can play into Um, the atmosphere in the classroom as well. Um, One thing that I just thought of also is how many students are in the class. It's much easier, obviously, to manage a class with four students than it is a class of 20 students. Exactly, yeah. And 
and the classes that I teach tend to have anywhere from 10 to 20 students and there, it can be a very different experience depending on the number of students for sure for sure so we've um, kind of looked at this English Skills Center blog and they have you know seven tips and you know we'd like to kind of run through them and talk about how we also use those in our classrooms so the first one is make class expectations clear and realistic and stick to them okay so I think that that can be a tricky one because as we've discussed so many times um, there are, are always things that come up like you might have a policy about no late work and then you have a student who has a genuine excuse maybe they have a health concern or someone in their family died or they have to go out of the country and so you want to hold firm um, but things always come up so how to navigate that delicately right and I think you know definitely having your policies that are going to be the policies in general not the exceptions in the syllabus is definitely a good first step um, but also I kind of believe in reiterating over and over and over again you know sometimes even saying as I'm handing out a homework assignment remember I don't accept late work so this is due on June 7th or yeah. whatever the date is yeah you can't repeat too many times <laughs> right. um, and I like the idea also of, of what you mentioned in the last episode about having a contract sometime in the middle of the semester mm -hmm. to sort of reinforce those rules that you established at the beginning right yeah, and the second tip is be consistent. So set class routines and that students can become familiar with. Um, I know we've talked about our friend Nancy before. Um, she's a fellow teacher, and she set a routine of um, she always puts the classroom assignments in the same spot, and it's the students' responsibilities to come pick them up before they leave for, for class that day. So. Um, I kind of like that because they know, hey, there are papers out, we need to go pick them up so that we have our assignment sheets and, you know, they always know where to get them. Yeah, I like that. I do the same thing with um, students turning in work. Mm -hmm. There's um, a chair in the front of the room that is um, fondly referred to as the journal chair. And on days that journals are due, students know to turn them in. And I, I'll ask um, and maybe give a verbal reminder, but I don't beg students to turn in their homework. They know that it's due and where to put it. Right, right. I think that's a really good policy to stick to. Um, the third tip is find a balance between being your student's teacher and being their friend. So um, I think the way that they clarified this in, the, in their blog post was respected versus approachable. Right, and I think that um, I'm not sure that I agree with that, actually, because I think that a teacher can be both respected and approachable. I don't mm -hmm. think you have to cross any boundaries or be more like a friend than a teacher in order to be viewed as approachable. Um, nevertheless, I do think that this is a really good uh, tip and that it's something important to keep in mind in classrooms where we do have students of all different ages. Um, you know, having students my age and younger um, can sometimes present that problem of you know okay we're not friends you know right it's great like or you know in some cases I've run into students out and I don't mean like at the grocery store but like at the movies or at a concert one time and you know so you you do want to be careful um to, to establish that boundary absolutely and I agree with you I think my goal would be to be both respected and approachable because I don't know to me when I'm thinking of other people 
part of what would make me respect them is that they are approachable and, and you know, easily uh, accessible. So, yeah, I, I, I see what they're saying with that. You don't want to be so buddy-buddy that there's no focus on um, what you're there to do. But at the same time, you know, sometimes they do need somebody to kind of lean on at times. And, you know, I've had a lot of students tell me a lot of stuff about their lives. That well, Stephanie, I'm about to tell you something about my life. Uh-oh. I'm oh, going to geez. tell you about a dream that I had the other night where one of my friends um, in the dream was a student in my class and in the dream, I was teaching an ESL class, but I guess there were also a limited number of seats for, for native speakers who needed to take an English class and whatever. It didn't make sense because it was a dream. But anyway, my friend was there and I had to give her a D and she cried and argued and was so upset and it, and it ended up testing our friendship. Yeah. And as silly as this may sound, um, to have had a dream like this, I think that that is kind of the whole point in having that boundary because if you become too friendly with a student and you hang out with them outside of class and you know you're really buddy buddy and then you have to give them a bad grade well then that that starts to wear on the friendship right well sure and I think that sometimes they may translate you know oh well she's told me about her family and her kids and so we're friends and so there's no way she's going to fail me at the end of the semester or give me a bad grade or something I don't think I deserve. And so, you know, the, you want to be very careful, or I want to be very careful to not cross that line because um, while I love getting to know my students, I would never want that to be any kind of indicator that they're going to receive a certain grade or, or certainly, you know, be above getting a fail. So, yeah, so the next um, tip would be work to engage all the students while teaching. Don't base the pace of an entire class on one or two students. And I think this is one for me personally, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a hard one to manage and to stay balanced on. Well, and it ties in nicely to what we discussed in our last episode about introverts and passive learning, um, because you are going to have different learning styles in your classroom in, a diff- in addition to you know just the fact that some people learn more quickly than others. So it is important not to just pick that best and brightest student and kind of direct everything toward them and figure, oh, everyone else will catch up, but to kind of teach the middle. Right, or to even worry about, I mean, we all worry, but to focus on the ones who are struggling the most um, because the other students become bored or disinterested. Exactly. And, you know, you can't really afford for that to happen either. So it, it is a delicate balance in terms mm-hmm. of where you're putting your energy. Um, so working towards the middle, I think, is a good policy. Um, the next tip, use interactive activities and open-ended questions as a chance to check student comprehension. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the open-ended questions. I feel like that really allows the student to uh, showcase what they've learned and maybe even work through something as they're talking to you rather than just a yes or no response. Yeah, and, I, and again, that's also something that we touched on before, that it's hard to gauge whether someone understands something when they just have to choose between two monosyllabic answers. Right, right. So next is ask for student feedback and incorporate it as appropriate for everyone. And this is one I do try to to work with because I am big on everybody having a different learning style and different 
um, preferences. And so this isn't to say that my students, you know, are in charge and I'm not, but I do take what they have to say, their suggestions, you know, into consideration. This semester in grammar, I had someone say, you know what, it would really be helpful um, if we went over the homework more in class rather than you take it home and grade it and give it back to us. And I thought about it, you know, for a couple of the um, chapters that we worked on, I thought through this idea and I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to give her suggestion a try and see how that works. And what I found is that a lot of the students who hadn't been asking me questions actually started asking questions when we would go through the homework and say, well, and why I like the idea of having way? less grading at home. <laughs> Tell That's me about it. Nice I know that well. student was a genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, anyway, so yeah, definitely student feedback can be helpful. Uh, recognize that some discipline concerns need to be dr- addressed immediately while others are better done individually after class. So I agree with this one, full-hearted, and sometimes it's hard to know for sure. Um, I, I This semester I had someone who's very direct, and I think sometimes she didn't realize how her direct comments affected other students. And so um, initially I would try to soften her comments and be like, well, I see where so-and-so was coming from, or. Um, But eventually I did have to have kind of a one-on-one conversation with her because um, I know my own patience, to be perfectly honest, was being tested and the other students started to feel a little nervous around her because she was quite direct. Yeah, and I think that there is a benefit sometimes to calling someone out on that in the classroom in a nice way. Um, I I think especially if it's a problem that you're afraid might... um, be demonstrated by other students, then you might as well say something in front of the class and take that opportunity to have a kind of a teaching moment like, oh, you know, that's not helpful or let's not do that. Um, But if you're just going to embarrass the person um, or it doesn't really benefit the class to hear the the reprimand, then I think it's better just, like you said, to take that person aside and talk to them one-on-one. Precisely. Precisely. And then we came up with um, three more tips to make it an even 10. Um, So our first tip is follow the golden rule. Treat students with the same respect you expect from them. And I think that this um, goes nicely with the last one because you don't want to embarrass a student or disrespect them in front of their peers and you don't want them to embarrass you or disrespect you. And so by kind of establishing that um, everyone is deserving of that respect, then you're going to be treated better as well. Exactly. Exactly. So our next tip is don't shame students into submission or participation. Um, I started reading a blog several years ago um, written by Brene Brown. Some of you may know her. Um, She has one of the most widely watched TED talks and um, she's become BFFs with Oprah recently. Um, But basically Brene Brown, yeah, lucky. um, I know Oprah loaned her a t-shirt or something for her show. I know. Can you imagine? <laughs> so um, so Brene Brown is a researcher. She's a PhD student who, or a PhD who studies shame and vulnerability. And so when I started reading her blog, I just found it very fascinating because she really is about leaning into that vulnerability and um, very much against using shame in any way um, based on all the research that she's done. 
And so I started reading her blog and then I started reading her books. And then I started thinking about, well, how does this apply in my life? And in one area is teaching. And um, while I know, I'm sure that I, without even realizing it, I have shamed students in the past. I mean, I think that that's unavoidable to, you know, become zero shame um, environment. I aim for that and I strive for that because I don't think that it helps anybody to feel bad about something that they're doing. Well, and there's the intent behind what you do as well. I'm right. sure that I've shamed someone before unintentionally. But by striving to not shame someone, you're going to get closer to attaining that goal. Right. Right. And I've tried whenever I have, um, in the few occasions I have noticed that I have shamed someone, I do make an apology to the person or try to say, you know, um, maybe we could do it your way or try it your way or, you know, whatever the situation is to try to make them feel like they are part of the group and that, you know, they're not less than um, because of whatever they had done that I disagreed with. So um, I'm definitely striving to continue a shame-free environment. Well, I'm striving to be best friends with Oprah. So if that's what it takes. <laughs> oh, man. Lucky Brene. <laughs> um, our third tip is address different learning styles in addition to pace. So um, not only do you want to account for the fact that people learn at different pace, but that people learn in different ways and that if students aren't engaged in the way that you're teaching, then they're more likely to be disruptive. Um, mm -hmm. So that one simple way to maintain uh, a nice atmosphere in the classroom is simply to try to get everyone to enjoy what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, people have preferences, um, which, you know, for me, I'm a visual learner and kinesthetic, which is, it's kind of ironic then that I have a podcast where I'm only reachable in an audio way. Oh, but and funny that you should say that because our next segment is about visual I learners. Know. As, I know. As you surely how did, know. How did that work out that way? I don't know. <laughs> episodes, we will be um, having similar segments about audio learners and kinesthetic learners. So stay tuned. That's right. It's definitely worth looking at and, and exploring. And there's definitely a lot of things to discuss in all three areas. So yeah. So the, the source or inspiration or whatever you want to call it for um, this segment was Adam Simpson's blog, Teach Them English. And this was a blog about um, using infographics. So Stephanie, um, why don't you explain what an infographic is since you made me one? <laughs> so yeah, um, we had been talking about visual learners and whatnot, and I had happened upon this blog uh, post where the person was talking about using infographics to teach language. And um, so while I was explaining it to Jean and we were talking at a cafe, I made her an infographic. Um, which maybe maybe, we'll maybe I'll post, post it. it. Yeah, it's real great. Yeah, it was, it was a, an infographic about Jean. Um, but I wanted to show her how quick and easy it is to make an infographic that you could use in class. And so what I liked about this blog is that it had a lot of um, resources on it where you could click and create your own infographic. And so um, I thought that was pretty interesting. But basically an infographic is something that uses photos with language to kind of get the point across. Um, so a I, graphic that gives information. Exactly. There you go. Um, look at you. Look <laughs> at you. So, uh, so yeah, I, I thought that it was an interesting idea. And initially I thought, 
maybe it's only applicable for early learners, um, you know, or maybe that level. would be at lower level, um, beginners. But then as I thought about it and as Gina and I talked more about it, we found ways that you could use graphic infographics and as visuals. well as other visuals um, as you go, you know, throughout the uh, level, different levels of teaching English. Right. So we started um, brainstorming some ideas for beginning English. Um, and one idea that I have would be um, vo- having vocabulary um, instead of translating from English to a native language, translate from English to a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got this idea actually just this morning from meeting with a colleague, and she uses this in a very upper level class for MBA students, um, and the vocabulary is very advanced, but I think it would work nicely in a lower level class as well. Yes. Yes, I have used them in a beginning class. Um, I call them PictoWikis. It's my uh, own personal way. trademark, Stephanie Axe, 2014. Copyright. Yeah, <laughs> copyright. Um, so yeah, PictoWikis, where you know you maybe create a wiki like you find on wikipedia.com or org, whatever it is, and um, but you use photos. And so um, that allows students to be as literal with it if they, as they want or kind of allow for the abstract and for interpretation into what they're trying to communicate about whatever reading we had done together. And one way that I used visuals in my beginning academic English class was um, to create a timeline of events in the story. Mm-hmm. We were reading a book that took place um, in the 1970s but flashed back to the antebellum South. And it was confusing because it the the one character traveled back and forth in time, which um, was a very tricky thing to keep track of. Um, so we, we kept an, a timeline of her life in the 70s and in slave times so that we could um, visualize better what was happening in each right. part of the book. Right. Um, I have recently used illustrating for student work. Uh, we did our sec- section in listening and note-taking on graffiti, which I think I have talked about here before. And I had each student, they were each assigned a different theme, so something like peace or war. And they had to come up with their own uh, graffiti drawing that they worked on and, and brought to class to kind of explore different um, images within that theme. And it was really interesting to see what they came up with. And it would have been more interesting, Stephanie, if you'd been allowed to go through with your original plan and let the students draw their designs in sidewalk chalk. I know. The interesting thing is we had been talking about how graffiti was so controversial. And here I had kind of pumped the class up for doing our own graffiti using sidewalk chalk. But when I went through the proper channels, um, you know, it was kind of nobody really knew how to respond. And so um, it didn't get pushed through and approved. Um, but what was interesting is it showed the students how controversial graffiti really is. And so there was a deeper lesson there, which, you know, you can always appreciate that. Um, and the students worked hard on their pieces, so we were able to still honor those. But um, okay. they made their own little prototypes of them before they were going to put them in chalk. So, um, yeah, so that's one way that we used illustrations. I think that um, this next idea is not that original, and probably we've all done it in some way, shape, or form before, um, but diagrams, using Venn diagrams or columns or thought webs to get ideas flowing. Um, and then an idea that I came up with that's actually going to kind of bridge the two categories of beginning and intermediate is um, 
I created a chart, I guess you would call it, called the Building Blocks of English Writing. And it's in the shape of a pyramid. And at the bottom, um, the bottom row is made up of little blocks. And inside each block or inside each square is the, the word word. <laughs> um, and then in the next row up, the blocks say sentence. Or, uh, sorry, in the next row up, the blocks say phrase. And then in the next block up, they say clause. And then in the next block up, they say sentence. And so on so that students can see um, the difference between a word, a phrase, a clause, and a sentence. Um, so I used that in beginning English, and then I added to it for my intermediate English class, and above sentences, I put paragraphs. And above paragraphs, I put essays. So students could see how you build up to this essay um, and sort of put it in perspective of things that they already knew. I bet your visual learners loved that. Well, I um, enjoyed making it, and I think I'll post that on the website as well. You should, because I would love to maybe crib that from you at some point. So, Very yay. Good. So let's talk a little bit about intermediate English learners. You know, what type of uh, visuals do you like to use for those? You're, you're more of an expert on the intermediate than I am. I, I work high and I work low. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I work right in the middle. Um, so outlining is obviously a, a big deal um, in advanced English as well. Um, one time I was tutoring a student and, and I said to this student that tutoring, um, sorry, that outlining is like a blueprint. Um, and I kind of forgot that I said that until we were planning this episode and I remembered saying that and thinking like how could I actually develop that idea a little bit. So, um, you know, I would maybe bring in um, the floor diagram of a house and say, see how you can see where each room goes? And then I would give them their outline paper and on the outline paper maybe I'd have five blank boxes because of course we're writing a five paragraph essay in intermediate English. Um, and within each box, they would have to sort of um, indicate what was going to go there and sort of show them how you can't build a house without a plan and you can't write an essay without a plan. Right. I love that idea um, as a visual learner myself. I think that that would really help the ideas stick with me when I go to write my in-class essays by myself without any kind of um, tools with me right there. So I think that that's a great idea, Jean. And I also use a lot of color coding. Um, if, if we're working on an outline and the student writes a three-point thesis, mm -hmm. I will make each point a different color um, and then make the corresponding paragraphs match that color so that they can see how it connects back. Um, and I use, I use colors a lot in grammar as well, highlighting um, different parts of speech so that if we're looking at a sentence, um, all the subjects are yellow and all the verbs are green or whatever. Um, I also use visuals in grammar class in the form of uh, PowerPoints. Um, sometimes I'll have like a sentence and I'll ask the students to identify whatever the target is and I'll give them a chance to to answer the question before I click the button and have a box appear around it or whatever. Um, so using animations and, and things like that. Um, right. And then in grammar, I also used videos sometimes. I used Schoolhouse Rock. Um, one that comes to mind that was especially um, helpful, I thought, was the conjunction junction video where they actually show the train cars being hooked up by, by the conjunction cars. Right. Um, so that was a nice visual. And um, and other other pictures in in the powerpoints just to kind of help um, help students 
remember the the point easier right yeah and with like presentations um, sometimes I would do informal presentations with students where they would work as a group and I would give them maybe different questions like what were the main points of these chapters and who were the main characters and what were the conflicts and they would have they would brainstorm together and write them on a piece of paper and hang them up on the wall so that everybody in the class could see okay for the these three chapters that this group had these were the things that were going on and you yeah. know maybe that would help help the information stick a little bit better and then also when when discussing powerpoints i remember you told me that um you had taken like a class on on powerpoints and how to be succinct and not oh, have yes. too many words on a slide but you could have a picture instead yeah. of words yeah, you know, I've learned a lot from um, Guy Kawasaki. Some of you may know him in the business world. He was the first um, Apple marketing evangelist, and so he's brilliant. And I've heard him speak myself, and I, I love listening to him speak. He has a great style. But what I've taken away from some of his presentations is that, A, you, you really shouldn't put all of the words up on the screen. Use the visuals. A picture is worth a thousand words. It really is. It really is. So, yeah, I learned that from him. But I also learned that really no PowerPoint should be over ten slides. Oh. And that's a challenge. That's, yeah. Oh, man, it kills me when those students come in. They've got, like, a 54-slide PowerPoint. I had that this semester. I had someone with a 54-slide PowerPoint wow. for an eight-minute presentation. Wow. Not going to happen. I'm not going to do the math. Not going to happen. So, <laughs> so Stephanie, why don't you tell us about how you um, use visuals in advanced English? Because like you said, you've taught that yeah. more often than I have. Um, yeah, I've used, actually I borrowed one of your PowerPoint presentations um, to use to kind of like share background information on a specific topic. Um, I think that's great for the types of classes that I teach at the advanced level. We're usually reading some kind of historical Nonfiction, And so giving the students some of that cultural background on the why these things happened or how it got to that point can be really helpful. And I'm not huge on using PowerPoint in my classes, but, you know, sometimes it can be it can be helpful. And so um, I've done that. Uh, videos, as we've talked about before, there are so many great videos out there these days that you know you can always find something that'll that will relate and be relevant to what you're teaching um, pictures in wikis so my advanced students they do write wikis but they can't just use pictures they have to use words as well but I do let them look for pictures um, online to add to it as long as it's adding to it and the pictures aren't the content of their wiki um, I'm cool with that yeah, and I liked um, one thing that you said that you've done before is you let students use pictures that were both literal and abstract. So yeah. when you did your class read um, about Benjamin Franklin, you'd have some students put an actual picture of Benjamin Franklin, and then you'd have other students pick like um, a balance to show justice or something. So I like that idea, and it kind of it made me come up with an idea for using um, pictures in an outline mm -hmm. so that if a student's going to write about three characteristics of Ben Franklin, for example, then they would have to come up with a picture to represent each of the three points in their thesis and then have their outline be those three images. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love that idea, Jean, and I am probably going to snag it for fall because um, I think that's just another way to engage 
the students, especially when we work on our practice essay, because I always do a practice essay. I think that'd be the perfect time to kind of bring in those those images. Anything to make essay writing a little bit more fun for them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I hope that you guys enjoyed these tips and uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have other tips for um, engaging your classroom. And remember, we're going to have segments on audio and kinesthetic learners. So if you have any tips that you'd like to share in advance, we would love to include them in future episodes. Please do. Okay, so in the culturally speaking segment of this episode, we are going to discuss the English only debate. Um, And the English only debate is uh, something that affects all immigrants um, who have to choose between learning English and preserving their native language. Um, In St. Louis, where we live, there are, and I'm sure (laughs) I say this like it's unique, I'm sure in all cities where there are immigrants, um, you tend to see enclaves of um, immigrants from the same country or the same linguistic background, and they will um, live together in these communities and speak together and you almost don't even feel, you know, you don't have to know that much English. Um, So this is a problem um, in a way if you want to be integrated into the wider community. Right. Exactly. And so sometimes that means, you know, letting go a little bit. Um, I think we did have an episode called, you know, saying yes is saying no and so sometimes when you're saying yes to English you're saying no to your native language you are and you're letting it go a little bit and I can see how some people especially maybe first uh, generation families they may feel a little bit um, sad to see that you know the focus has shifted to to their English um, rather than their native language or they may even resist that and I want to make it clear also that we don't necessarily advocate advocate English only. Um, I have a lot of respect for people, for their native languages and for their native cultures and everything. But if, if you have a student who's particularly struggling and doesn't understand why they're not advancing in their English, then this could be a suggestion. Well, maybe you need to try speaking more English at home um, or, you know, in your community. Yeah, and that's one of the things on my questionnaire that I give out the first day is I try to really find out, you know, where are you speaking English? Is it just at home? Is it, or just, you know, when you're at work? Is it just at school? Do you speak it with other people who share your native language as their native language? Um, I really try to get into that issue with them because that tells me a lot about, you know, what um, their environment is like. And one sort of subset of immigrants who are particularly affected by this um, are kids. (laughs) So kids can easily be caught between cultures. If they're very young when they come to the United States, then they're likely to identify more with their American friends and maybe feel um, like their parents' traditions are outdated or something. Um, And they're going to feel like they have to choose. Right, right. And this kind of goes along with, um, if you're familiar with the term third culture kids. And so these children are children who have spent most of their developmental years in a culture that's different than both of their parents' native 
cultures and languages. And so um, what you find is that third culture kids actually have a lot more in common with other third culture kids, regardless of what their background is, where they're from, what languages they speak, um, because it does create this whole other environment um, that kind of gives them this dynamic um, approach to life. And so, um, you know, third culture kids are definitely, you know, affected by this choice of when to use which language. And I think um, that when when children come at a young age and they are, are more competent in speaking the native or the, the language of the country than their parents are, they get put in a situation where they're acting out a lot of the grown up roles. And so I have a friend who is from Vietnam, but she was, I think she was born there actually, but she moved here when she was like three years old. And she obviously learned English very quickly and had a much easier time. And she ended up doing all of the banking for her parents and all kinds of things that I couldn't fathom doing as a 10 year old. And when we met, we were in college. And um, I remember that she didn't know how to boil water to make pasta. And I thought wow. like, that's crazy. Like how much easier can you get than boiling water? Well, in her family growing up, the, her parents did all the cooking, as you see often in, um, in immigrant families, like they cooked a lot of Vietnamese food. So she knew how to make, um, or uh, sorry, so her parents did all the cooking, but she knew how to do all the banking and stuff. So I'm like, yeah, I can boil water, but I can't, maybe I can't do something else that you know how to do, so. Right, yeah, it definitely gives them skills that are um, more adult focused or, you know, typical in adults. Um, so it definitely affects, can affect them in that way too. So Especially when you have kids, um, as so often happens, translating for their parents at parent-teacher conferences. Mm, that puts them yeah. in a tough position. Yeah, that can, you're right, you're right. Um, another another group of people who are uh, particularly affected by the English-only debate um, are multilingual countries. So, for example, Canada, um, where most of the country speaks English, but in Quebec they speak French. This has caused some political and cultural tension, um, as it has probably in, in other countries where there's uh, more than one official language. And not necessarily English doesn't even have to be one of them. Right. I mean, there there can be some huge challenges um, and tensions created. And, you know, you see it throughout the years. You see it come and go, especially in Canada, um, that decision of, well, should Quebec be part of Canada? Should it be its own country? You know, how uh, do they culturally identify with the rest of the country? And so, um, you know, it can definitely cause those type of divides. Um, and so, you know, that kind of brings us to another Point, which is language status and so you know sometimes what can happen is that maybe English or another language is viewed as having a higher status maybe you use that language to do all of your education and your business but then when you're speaking just with other people it might be your native language and um, without trying sometimes because you're using the English to do higher level types of things it can give that language a higher status than the native language. Yeah, and I think we see that often in countries that were formally colonized, um, where in these countries, say, take um, take uh, Congo, for example, um, they will maybe have French be the language of their 
government or their schools or whatever, but then within each home, people are going to speak Lingala and their own languages. So that also will affect the status. Right, exactly. And, you know, if you are somebody who's not wealthy enough to be involved in the government or uh, get a formal education, you won't know French. And so, um, you know, sometimes that can be seen as limiting and keeping people within a class. Um, and so, you know, that's definitely something you see. And you even see it here in the United States with Spanish. Absolutely. I have a friend whose father is Mexican, and growing up, he didn't spe- teach her a word of Spanish because of the connotation of, of um, it being a lower status. Right, yeah, people thinking that, you know, illegal or, you know, oh, an immigrant who's working on the farm. Um, But in reality, I mean, so many millions of people speak Spanish that, you know, it's it's not necessarily a low-status language, but it can be seen that way depending on where you live in the U.S. And um, speaking of the U.S., (laughs) did you know, um, you do know, Stephanie, I know you do because we've already talked about it, but that English is not the official language of the United States this is something that I didn't know for a long time, and um, I suspect that there may be a lot of people out there who, who don't realize that the United States does not have an official language. Yeah, this is a highly debated topic, and sometimes a politicized topic as well. Um, and I think it's interesting because it shows our commitment to diversity and how things can change and how uh, you know we don't want to be boxed in. Uh, And I I think it's a really interesting debate. It is. And because English is so, um, you know, the most widely spoken language, um, it's sort of become the unofficial official language. And I think that that's what causes it to have a higher status. Um, But that if people would remember that it's not the official language and that in some parts of the country, Spanish is spoken more predominantly than English, and um, those kinds of things could maybe help um, take away from the status mm-hmm. um, in a good way. Um, and so we kind of want to leave you with a question, um, listeners, and please give us feedback. Um, you know, it's a huge debate today about whether or not the U.S. should have an official language. And so some other questions that, that kind of come from that one is, well, what would it be if we had one? And would it be possible to have more than one official language? And then what would those be? And finally, would, would these issues be decided at the state or federal level? So, no. yeah, these are definitely some things to think about. We'd love to hear from you, um, especially if you live in a place that is quite diverse. And um, we'd love to hear your observations and what your thoughts might be on the topic. Uh, so, as always, you can reach us on our Facebook page or on Twitter, which is at the minimal pair. Um, also, please send us a Gmail. Uh, our, our Gmail address is the minimal pair at gmail.com. Simple enough. And our box is empty, folks. I know. You gotta you gotta send us some send us some messages. Let us know you're out there. Um, but until next time, keep it minimal. <laughs>